difícil. I was busy making some phone calls before church to see how all those that were sick were doing <laughs> so I could give an update. And I walked out of my office and completely forgot the microphone. So it doesn't really matter. We have one here, but I never know on a night when I was called into duty. Edward was supposed to be preaching tonight. And so you never know what you're going to get tonight. It could be a danger. I'm on, Scott. Now I can run free up here for as long as I want. It won't be long, I promise. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. It's a message I enjoy preaching, the last one of the year. At this point, for all of the teenagers in here, I could make those terrible jokes. Don't worry, you won't have to hear me for the rest of the year. But you'll hear me Sunday morning, so you better be here. Revelation chapter 2. It is a night of reflection. It is a night of looking back as to what God has done. And it's a good opportunity for us to think on the things that have occurred throughout this calendar year. And uh, I want us to look at our first love as it is referenced here by Jesus Christ himself, penned by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He says in verse number 1 of chapter 2, Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Let's pause and set the scene as we read, and then we'll pray and jump into the message. John has seen Christ in his conquering form. He has just seen him in his all full glory in chapter number 1. Here, the reference is to the angel of the church at Ephesus. It means the messenger or the one who is called to declare the message unto that church. It would be their pastor. He says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars. The stars are held in his right hand, speaking of the authority that he has through those messengers that he's given. And he, Christ himself, is walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. It's a picture of the church in its completion. Uh, He's going to deal with seven churches if we were to study it through chapters 2 and 3. We aren't. We're just going to look at a phrase from the church at Ephesus. But that is the setting. These are the words of Jesus Christ to his church at the end of the age. It's a good message, then, you might think, for the end of a year as we reflect back and consider it. In verse number 2, we go on. The Bible says, I know thy works. That's a very sobering thought to know that Jesus Christ watches us and knows how we comport ourselves. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and hast not fainted. This so far is good, but we're going to find out it's missing something. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit 
saith unto the churches, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Father, help us tonight as we now turn our attentions to the truth of the Word of God. Help us to see and to know that which is important to you. It is not all the swelling words that we speak on your behalf. It's not our intentions in our heart or in our head, but it is what we do and how we do it that's important to you. The love that we are to have, the sacrificial love that we are to have. Father, I pray in this hour that you would help us in reflection, both here in the, in the service, in the auditorium, and those who are unable to be here but are watching. I pray that we would all reflect carefully on how we have lived our lives over these last 12 months so that as we depart 2022, we can say with confidence that we have not left our first love. Bless in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this year, I always like for believers to reflect on our own spiritual condition. It's a good thing to do. In fact, it's the main reason you should be having daily devotions so that you can have introspection and reflection on what you have done the day before and what you will do in the day ahead. But it's especially good to take spiritual stock at the end of a calendar year. It's a good time to consider our love for God and just how we have acted in accordance to that love or the love that we say we have for God. One author of this Ephesian church says this, The furnace was still there, but the fire had gone out. And that is true of this Ephesian church. Our first love, their first love, was the person of Jesus Christ himself. It was the fact that Jesus Christ had died for them, had given his life for them. As we sung of our blessed Redeemer, it is what we too should always have at the forefront of our mind. Forgetting the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ will cause us to fall away. Think of people that you've known in church who are no longer in church and stop and reflect as to why that is so. I'm not asking you to judge them for their sins. I'm asking you to reflect on their decisions. One after another, they were leading away from their love for Christ. Forgetting the depth and breadth will cause us to fall away, my friend. This evening, I want us to notice the... Ephesians' present crisis and their climax, or their apex, we might say, where they were at their peak as we consider this church and the two letters written to it this evening. Why do we want to study them on this last Wednesday of the year? Uh, the answer is because if they could leave their first love, having been challenged and taught by the men of God that taught them and challenged them, we too are in danger of falling away if we're not careful. Consider first in your outlines tonight, Ephesus' present crisis. That's what we're reading in Revelation 2. It was their present crisis. Their need in the moment, if you will. You know, most people who have fallen away from God don't recognize their need in the moment. 
Most people who leave their first love do not recognize that they've left it until it's far too late. It doesn't mean it's not, that it's uh, irreconcilable. It's just that they don't notice it until they're really far away and are asking very difficult questions. And what Jesus is doing through John's pen here to the church at Ephesus is wake up. Pay attention. Wake up now. Your present crisis is that you are falling far away from me. You need to remember and repent, he tells them in verse number 5. It's an interesting thing, by the way, when you study the New Testament. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians commending them on these three things in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. He commended them on their work of faith on their labor of love and their patience of hope. If you read carefully the passage that we just read here in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus comments that the church at Ephesus had works, had labor, and had patience. But do you know what they had lost? They had lost and forgotten the faith, the hope, and the love that were necessary in them. Churches can have that happen. Believers can have that happen. They become so dead and dull in their own Christian walk that they no longer care about the things for the right reasons. They just care about things. They punch clocks and look for check marks and make sure they've done all the rules. And God says, that's not what I want from you. Those things will come so long as you love me. The church at Ephesus had forgotten that. Notice with me first in our passage in Revelation 2, Ephesus' present crisis included the fact that their vitality, their very life, was gone in verse number 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. If we leave the love of God, we are leaving the life of God. We're leaving our vitality, our vibrancy. And as a church corporate, we are doomed if that happens to us. As an individual, you are dead if it happens to you. Oh, you can't lose your salvation, but you go back into the deadness of your old life. And the point is, is that there is no vitality. And what he says to them here is, look, I have somewhat against you. You may be working, you may be laboring, you may be patient, but you have forgotten the why. And that's what is good at the end of a year to remember why we even do this stuff. Why do we do Christianity at all? Why do we do church? Why do we care about the things of the Word of God? Why is it so important? Well, because if we don't, Pastor, nobody will, right? But that's not even the right reason. You do the things of God and the Word of God because you love God. And you're thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for you. Their vitality was gone, but notice number two, and in verse five, their validity was gone. Their validation that which stamped them as Christian. He says in verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. They were no longer walking with God. Oh, they were walking somewhere, but they weren't walking with God. What a tragic statement that Jesus gives here in summation of the problem for this church at Ephesus. May it never be said of us. May it never be true of us as a body whole and as individual members specifically. There really is nothing new under the sun. This phrasing that he uses here, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, is very reminiscent of what happened to Solomon's boy, King Rehoboam. They were not even aware that they had fallen or that there was a problem. In 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 21, I'll put the verses on the board for us. The Bible says this, And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. 
Rehoboam was 40 and one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all. And he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. This is just one generation. Two generations from when King David sat on the throne and conquered all of these lands. The Bible goes on to say, And King Rehoboam could not think, could not remember, could not understand the gravity of what had just happened. Instead, he just glosses over it like so many Christians do. The Bible says, And King Rehoboam made in their stead brazen shields. He made shields out of brass. Do you know what brass looks like when it's shined up and polished up? In the glittering sunlight, it doesn't look that much different than gold. In other words, he was trying to slap a fake on, a fraudulent front, to put on a pretense that everything was okay. In other words, it was no different than Ephesus. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Rehoboam didn't. Rehoboam made in their stead brazen shields and committed them under the hands of the chief of the guard, which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard that the guard bare them and brought them back into the guard chamber. In other words, they acted like nothing had changed. They didn't even think about the loss of God's glory and the goodness that had been taken from them. When Rehoboam came to the throne of Israel, he acted like the fool that he was. In humbling him, God allowed the Egyptians, the world, to invade Judea and to carry away the spoils of those golden shields that Solomon had provided for the temple guards. Rather than truly repenting, Rehoboam seemingly took the loss in stride. It's all right. No big deal. No different than what the Ephesians were doing here in Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus is warning them. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. You have no validity in your Christian life if you were a fraud. In Rehoboam's mind, those brazen shields, they would do. They looked like gold. The shield would shine in the sun and no one would know the difference. This is what had happened at Ephesus and what has happened to many a fundamental church, a Bible-believing church. The enemy has made off with the gold of our devotion and love for God. And what we do instead is slap a lot of ministries on them and instead say, we're doing fine, look what we do. God said, I don't care what you do until you first care about me and love me. The Ephesians needed to realize that they are fallen. So too do many Christians who excuse away their failures and their faults. Loving God means putting away our flesh and our sinfulness, not encouraging them. Their vitality, their validity were both gone. But third and finally, in verse number five, we see that their value was gone. 
What worth is a church to God if it is not alive and it is a fraud? <laughs> the answer is not much. We see them on every street corner in Georgetown. We find them throughout Kentucky and our commonwealth and in our country. A church without a pastor that is doing the right thing, it's interesting, the Bible tells us, Jesus in speaking, says that he is going to come and take away the candlestick out of his place. The indication here is that he's going to remove the messenger, the pastor, and the church itself. It is no longer valuable to me, at the end of verse number 5. The candlestick was going to be removed likely because the pastor of that place no longer preached truth, and certainly he no longer led the flock in a God-honoring direction. A church's value rests upon both the pastor and the people doing the work of God by the word of God in the will of God. Under Eli's priestly judging of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. Israel was so far removed from God that when his daughter-in-law, if you remember the story, Eli was so hefty, fat, and old that when he heard the news, he fell over dead. His two sons had been killed, but his daughter-in-law gave birth to a son, and she named that son Ichabod. It means the glory is departed. Many a church has the phrase Ichabod written across it because there is no value in that place anymore to God or His glory. The church at Ephesus is the only church in the New Testament in which two apostles addressed letters to them. Now, there's two letters written to Corinthians, but they were both by Paul. Here we have the apostle John writing the words of Jesus Christ, and Paul wrote under inspiration of the Holy Ghost to them. Take your Bibles and turn back to Ephesians, because I want to see number two in our outline, Ephesus' pointed climax. The pointed climax. What was the peak, if you will? What was the, the apex of their church history? Where were they doing things right? And what did right look like? What was the encouragement from God? That's what I want us to walk through in the final 10 minutes or so of the evening tonight. Of all the truths revealed through Paul in the New Testament, none of the truths in any of the other letters excel the pure truths revealed in the epistle to the Ephesians. In the first three chapters alone, there are two notable prayers and one purpose-filled principle that we can live by. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are practical applications of those prayers and principles. In other words, we could say in the last three chapters of Ephesians, faith is no good if it isn't practiced. The climax of Ephesus, that's apex, if you will, involved first in letter A, a prayer for light. That's what chapter 1 is about. It's a prayer for light or illumination or enlightenment, as he's going to say in this, this chapter. Now, I'm not going to study every verse in this chapter. I enjoy when I go through with men in the church and Bible study, I try to always say study sentences. It's the best way to study the Word of God is study by sentences. You'll never get lost in the Word of God if you just take a sentence and begin to dissect it and diagram it. Now, for those of us that hate grammar and hate English class, it's tough sometimes because Paul likes run-on sentences. I mean, he has really long sentences. He has very deep thoughts. We're going to find a couple of those as we see here in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 1 both answers and asks for divine light. 
Paul begins by answering a few things first. Now, that's backwards, I know. We usually ask and then answer. But he's answering some things so that he can ask the right questions in a prayer form at the end of chapter 1. Here's the prayer for light. First, in our notes, he is illustrating God's role in salvation. In verses 1 through 14, there's an illustration of what God does in his three persons in our salvation. Scott, could you do me a favor? I don't know how online if it's loud. It seems loud up here. I'm not, I'm echoing. I'm getting a little hum every once in a while. I'm not sure. I feel like I'm going to explode. Every once in a while, it'll beep and it'll hum. And maybe the message is that bad. Somebody at home is sending us a message. I don't know. The prayer for light is that he answers first for us. If you want to have enlightenment, you have to understand who God is and what he's done for you. That's the first love that they had, what God did for them in salvation. So he gives to us a couple things. In verses 3 through 6, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That's a sentence. That's a great sentence. And here's what it tells us. As the Father, he is our benefactor and he is our beloved. It's whom we are to be in love with. We love Jesus Christ because we have the love of Christ. But that love is directed towards God the Father. He is our benefactor and he is our beloved, we find in verses 3 through 6. We find in verses 7 through 12 the illustration of God's role in salvation as it pertains to the Son. Verse number 7, in whom? Well, in whom whom? In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Sentence is still going on. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. That is the glory of Jesus Christ, who first trusted in Christ. We find in these verses two illustrations or two things that are very illustrative. And that is, one, through the Son we have our redemption. And two, through the Son we have revelation. We have obtained an inheritance. That dispensation of the fullness of times is revealed to us by Jesus Christ, by his coming. The third element that we find in this prayer for light in chapter 1 is that work of the Holy Spirit. The Father is our benefactor and beloved. The Son is our redemption and revelation. But in verses 13 and 14, we find the Holy Spirit is both our seal and our sign, or the earnest. Earnest simply means a thing intended or regarded as a sign or promise of what is to come. He says in verse 13, "...in whom ye also trusted." After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, the sign of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His 
glory. Three times we find in this praise, praise, and praise. By the way, before you go to prayer, you need to be in a spirit of praise if you love God. We praise the glory of the Father in verse 6. We praise the glory of the Son in verse 12. And we praise the glory of what the Spirit of Christ does in us in verse number 14. Then we find, number two, the illuminating of our responsibility from salvation. This is the prayer. The prayer for light is that we might be enlightened or illuminated. We should never forget the function of each person of the Godhead and what they play or the role that they have in our salvation. When we begin to forget, that is when we begin to fall away from our first love. By the way, parents, we should teach our children what God does as Father, Son, and Spirit for you in salvation. Why there is a Father, why there is a Son, and why there is a Holy Spirit. Why God is who He is, we might say. That is the illustration given to us. But it illuminates, secondly for us, in this prayer. Listen to this prayer, beginning in verse 15. Wherefore, or because of what I've just illustrated, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints... Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Friends, if you don't understand that God works in you and he works on your behalf, you're missing out on the true love of God, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The prayer for light opens us, secondly, to a principle for life, letter B. Remember, the admonition from Jesus through John's pen was that the Ephesians would remember and repent, turn from their fallen state. He has given them, chapter 1, through the Apostle Paul, a prayer for enlightenment. But he gives them a principle for life in chapter number 2. What does divine life look like? How does divine life become ours? How could the Ephesians forget it? I mean, I kind of know I'm alive, right? I mean, anybody in here knows if you're alive. You don't know if you're dead. You do know if you're alive. That's just the truth of how God's created us. It's the difference between life and death. And in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he gives us a principle for life or that we can build our life upon. Divine life is first through God's handiwork. It's a long passage, but in verses 1 through 18, we'll not read all of it. I will just frame it for you. The point is God has a plan. And he has worked his plan. It is at his handiwork. It is by his design and by his doing. 
John wrote this in 1 John 4 and verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. That's what the Ephesians were forgetting. They had forgotten that God first loved them. They thought God now had to love them because of all the work they were doing for him. No, God loved them first so that they could love him in return. They had lost perspective in God's plan or handiwork in our salvation. The letter written to their church by the Apostle Paul taught them this principle for life. In verses 1 through 3 here of chapter 2, they learn of their condition. And he and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom... This was their condition. Also, we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Their condition was dire, but then in verses 4 through 7, God's compassion is given to them. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. If you really lived by that life principle, understanding God's compassion, how could you ever forget his love? Verses 8, 9, and 10, we find grace's creation. Their condition, God's compassion, and then grace's creation. In verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. If we were to continue reading in this chapter, we would find the fourth principle of life is not that it's just our condition, dead, God's compassion, a compassion, merciful life, and grace's creation, a workman that can be approved by God, but finally it's Christ's conquest. The conquering nature of who Christ is, that is the principle that we live our life by. In verses 11, 12, and 13, his blood gives us life. He says in verse 12, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. His blood gives us life, but his body, the fact that he came in the flesh that we just celebrated this last Sunday on Christmas, his body guarantees our life. That he came, we are guaranteed of eternal life. Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, all bodily. If he had not been incarnate, if he had not come in the flesh, then there would be no guarantee of access before a holy God. But he did come, he did die, and he did raise the third day, and so we do have that guarantee. That's what he tells us in verses 14 through 18. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, he bodily came, and that bodily presence of Christ and the conquering of sin is what guarantees us an audience with God. In verse number 19, it pivots away from the fact that God's handiwork is in salvation. That is our principle for life. 
But the principle of living is seen in verses 19 through 22. We are God's habitation. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom, in Jesus Christ, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. For what purpose, verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for and habitation of God. When we forget our first love, when we don't live according to the love of Christ, when we don't live in the love of God, we are no longer a suitable habitation for God. Our lives are built on truth revealed in the Bible and through Christ's life as he lived it. His life frames and fits us together into a temple that God indwells. So is your life a temple inhabited by God, or is it a tragedy that is inhibiting God and his work in this world? That's what the Ephesians, in their present crisis of Revelation 2, were finding themselves in. Busy, 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 working, 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 always at church, always at church, always at church, but they'd lost the love of God. The Ephesians of Paul's letter were encouraged to grow their lives unto a holy temple. The Ephesians in John's letter had left that pursuit. At their apex, at their climax, at their pinnacle, this is what God wanted for them, and they had left it. A prayer for light, a principle for life in chapter 3, and we'll not take any time that needs to be spent on it, as we should for time's sake this evening. Let us see a prayer for love. This prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 is what they effectively had left by the time we come to Revelation 2 and verse 4. In verses 1 to 9 of Ephesians 3, we are enlightened. Paul says this in verse 8, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. By the way, that's an enlightened soul. He doesn't think very highly of himself is the grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's truly been enlightened as to who Jesus is. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. In other words, we have that enlightenment because we have Jesus Christ in our life. The second point there underneath this is that we are empowered. When you get to verse number 10... You move from being enlightened to being empowered. To the intent, he says in verse 10, what purpose is this? To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, God literally wants to live out his life through us. Stop and think about that for a second. We are his body. That means what God wants accomplished As a living being, and he is an eternally living being, what he wants accomplished, he wants to accomplish in and through us. That is what the heavenly powers look down at and say, whoa. He's never done that through us, we angels. He didn't do that effectively through the Old Testament Israel, though that was his original intent, but they never allowed him to do that. When we leave our first love, we leave the power that is ours. 
according to the eternal purpose, verse 11, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In other words, don't worry about present temporal problems because you have a power that's greater than this world. Third and finally, we are enabled. This is the prayer. This was the problem for the, Revel, or the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. They had lost their enablement. He says, I'm going to take away your candlestick. I'm going to remove you from being a church at all. Ichabod will be written across your name. Oh, heaven help us if that's ever said of our church because of the people of this place. It is love that enables us. He says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the prayer for love. He closes now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in, in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. In other words, this power, this enablement will never run out unless you let it, unless you squelch it. And by the time we get to Revelation 2 and verse 4, doggone it if they had not done just that. Taken the omnipotent power and life, love and light of God that wanted to flow through them and they had left it. They had fallen away from it. Where love lacks in a marriage, in a home, in a church, in a community, there is a great crippling of those units and groups. The highest functioning of any unit, family unit, community, or a group, is that they would have mutual love for each other. And that's what a Christian must have towards Christ. Undying love for him motivation from what he's done for us. The love of God is the enabling for the church. The Ephesians had left their first love. They had settled for a powerless existence. May that never be said of us. Paul prays that they would be strengthened by the Spirit, that they would be sustained through their heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ. This strengthening and sustaining is what enables us to know the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. That's the comprehension that God wants for us. And yet so often people will say, I'm not even sure if I'm in love with Jesus anymore, Pastor. And I will say, oh, please fall in love with him again. It's our only hope as a body. It's your only hope as a believer. In closing, our goal as believers should be always to be growing in the love of God. Chapter 3 and verse 19, that we might know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of